Well, good morning. So uh, we are uh, now. He's excited to be here. She, sorry, I couldn't tell from here. So, well, what's that? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Uh, so I'll just give you a little fair warning. I've had a sore throat the whole week, so if I have to consult uh, my tea with honey in it uh, periodically, then that may help me to keep from having a little coughing spaz. So just to let you know that. So we are uh, fast approaching the, the end of this recalibrating series that we, we've been doing. And uh, I... I um, I got through halfway of what I wanted to get through last Sunday, and so now I'm going to try and finish it up this Sunday. Um, and I want to begin with, uh, I just want to begin kind of rhetorically a little bit by asking a couple of questions of you, and uh, to get us sort of tracking uh, what, where I think we need to go. So let me ask you this question. Who are the Christian heroes of your faith, and Why? When you think about your life as a believer and as a Christian, who would be your Christian hero? And why is that person you, your Christian hero? Who would they be? And so, uh, like, like, uh, just like I did when I taught at college, you are allowed to raise your hand and answer, which would be great. So, who, who, would, who would be your Christian hero? Chuck Swindoll. So he would certainly be one of, as with Rocky, he would certainly be one of my literary, in other words, a person that I've never met, but a person that I have read a fair amount, and I would commend him to you. Uh, anything by Chuck Swindoll in terms of uh, your devotional life especially uh, is just uh, top drawer. Great guy. Yes, Ruth. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Okay, good. So I think Billy Graham has impacted a lot of us uh, over the years. And uh, really, uh, you know, of all the famous evangelists of the 20th century, can't think of one scandal associated with Billy Graham. I think he, he you know, which is saying something. Uh, so, and I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm just saying, look, he, he, ran, a, he ran a good race. He really did. So, uh, great, great, uh, uh, great example. Someone else? Yes, Jim. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm going to be quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer today, as a matter of fact. Yes, uh, one, of the, one of the premier, one of the most influential uh, theologians of the 20th century. Uh, his book um, about cheap grace uh, was, uh, was uh, a highly influential book in the 20th century. Hopefully it will continue to be in the 21st century. Uh, there seems to be a particular need for that book uh, even today. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who else would be a hero? C.S. Lewis, oh, thank you. C.S. Lewis is certainly one of my uh, most, uh, just a literary, don't agree with everything he said, but boy, the guy, uh, he had the pulse of what needed to be talked about and explored and just phenomenal. So, yes, thank you, C.S. Lewis. How about some, like, some people that you know, people that in your life, it impacted your life specifically, uh, who would you say um, in, you know, in terms of uh, somebody that, 
very personally impacted. Yes? Bev Thomas. Bev Thomas. So Bev has gone on to be with the Lord, and she always sort of sat over here or right over here, she and Al. Yeah, but uh, Bev Thomas had a wonderful impact in the life of our church. Very inspirational, wasn't she? Uh, I will never forget when Bev Thomas was talking about the third time that she was struggling with cancer and, uh, and, and came out of that, and she, she, said, she said, I have been three times blessed with cancer and by saying that implied that she used each of those cases to be able to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, which she did, uh, was pretty amazing. So Bev Thomas, very good. Someone else? Yes, Rocky. Yes. He was Scottish, wasn't he? Bob Sterrett? Okay. You had a way of quoting him, bless the Lord, or something like that. He had a particular accent. Oh, Simon DeVizier. Yeah, I didn't know either of them, but yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, but you, I remember you talking about him all the time. Yeah, uh, Frank. <laughs> well, thank you, Frank. That was very kind of you to say. Um, and Frank inspires me now because of what he does with his life. So I, I can say you do the same with, uh, for me, Frank. So thank you. Someone else? Anyone else? I know there's got to be more. I, Ruth and Nancy, I think of your mother. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you're, you're, no one worked harder to please the Lord than your mother did. I mean, she just, uh, she just, she, she devoted her life and everyone else's life as much as she could, <laughs> whether you wanted to or not, <laughs> to the service of the Lord. Yes. So someone else? Yeah, Patty. <laughs> Excuse me? Mm. Okay. Oh, wow. Well. Those are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, just a couple more and we'll, we'll move on. Anyone else? Yes. Bev Kirshner, yep. Bev Kirshner has a long history of serving the Lord here in this community, especially with her, her, her children's ministry, that she, her backyard children's ministry that she did. Yep, yep. Yeah, yep. Bev, okay. Sandy? Bonnie and Rocky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they brought you here and, uh, and uh, really either reinvigorated or you came to faith in Christ because of their impact in your life. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Patty? Sherry Lubick. Yes, exactly. So, and 
And Sherry, you know, your struggle with cancer and how you have used that to serve the Lord as well and how he's been faithful with you through all of that. Um, it's been a, another inspiring example for so many of us here. It really has been. And Sherry, you know, was the office administrator for five years? About that. And uh, she was tremendous. Just loved working with her. She did an excellent job and challenged me, and we had great conversations. She was wonderful. <laughs> you were not bossy. You were not bossy. Rich, she wasn't bossy. I don't know like, what she's doing, but she was not bossy. So, Yeah. Yeah. Your mom. Okay, good. Parents have uh, an impact, can have a tremendous impact. I think of, Carol, I think of yours, and, and Ed, I think of your parents and the impact they had on you and your faith. Um, uh, where's Kevin at? Uh, oh, Kevin's homesick, but, but uh, his father and his mother were, were pillars of this church for years and years and years, very authentic faith, loved the Lord with all their heart. So, um, so we are surrounded. Now, here's another question I have for you. How much of those people that you would say are heroes for you, how much of what they were have you copied in your life? I mean, if they were really heroes, how much have you taken from what they were as a hero and copied it into your life? Does their legacy as a believer live on in you and become a part of what you are and as a result of that, you are passing it on through your life to others as well. Is that happening? So one of the unique things about heroes is that not only do they oftentimes bring us to faith, but they recalibrate our faith. They give us hope and encouragement. They inspire us to do and to become more than what we were before. That's part of what heroes do. And then we incorporate into ourselves. Uh, the word incorporate means to be made to be a body so that we, it becomes embodied in us, uh, the essence of their faith, the things that inspired us most. So it's vital then that, like when I think of my own life, I think of, uh, I, I, I think of how my mother came to faith in Christ and how she insisted that we we go to church despite the unbelievable uh, barriers uh, that were there. I think of a guy named Paul Smith who, was the, who, who led our local campus life chapter in our school who invested in me. Um, I, think of, uh, I think of a guy like um, uh, Jack White at Geneva College, the president of the school, who invested in my life and inspired me in so many ways to become more than what I was. Um, and then there are so many other people beyond that who have, I think of Dr. Riedel at First Presbyterian Church. Um, I think of uh, John Guest who was at, uh, uh, at, uh, at St. Stephen's in Sewickley. 
So there were so many people, and then there were all the, the literary people uh, for me. C.S. Lewis, um, Bonhoeffer, um, I, I didn't rehearse in my mind, but I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are at least a dozen authors who have made profound impacts on my life. And, and I feel enriched and encouraged by it. So, um, there are some spiritual heroes in Scripture, too. And some people who did some unbelievably remarkable things, who, by the example that they set, are to help us to recalibrate our lives as well. And to say to ourselves, well, if I can't do exactly what they did, could I at least begin to move in that direction, right? So one of those people would be like Moses. Maybe you remember the account where Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's gone for a while and the Israelites are saying like, okay, what happened to this guy named Moses who brought us out here into the desert? Feels like we're kind of abandoned so maybe he's not coming back. We need to be guided by something, so let's make our own God. So Aaron took earrings and, and pieces of gold from people in, in Israel, and he put them in a pot and, and uh, made this golden calf, which was what Baal was oftentimes depicted as in the Old Testament, the, the god of fertility. And, uh, and they began to worship him. And so while Moses was on Mount Sinai, God said, hey, uh, there's a problem back at camp. So I think that what I'm going to do is I'm just going to destroy them and begin all over with you, Moses. And Moses uh, advocated for these people. And so this is what he says in Exodus 32 32, he says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, I want you to forgive them of their sin, but if you won't forgive them of their sin, of making this idol, rejecting you, abandoning Yahweh, and instead defaulting to this God that they just made, the God that Aaron said, well, we just threw this gold into a pot and out popped this, this uh, golden calf. I mean, who knew <laughs> that this would happen, right? So it was just like, you know, you could, class, you, could, you could chalk it up to one of the lamest excuses in the history of lame excuses, right? But Moses was undeterred. And so on behalf of the Israelites, he was willing to be blotted out of the book of life if God would not forgive the Israelites. And it said then, the, the, the text goes on to say how God repented of his anger. In other words, he went in the opposite direction of where he was and chose instead to forgive the Israelites. So Moses was imitating Christ. Moses was willing to be 
the same kind of curse that the people of, of Israel were going to be. He was going to identify with them so powerfully on behalf of them that he was willing to forsake his eternal salvation as well. Anybody here want to imitate Moses as a hero? That's, that's pretty intense, isn't it? Probably no one here could say that. But it doesn't mean we can't move in that direction so that we could be closer to being able to say that. And that's a part of recalibrating our life, becoming so Christ-like that we, we can imitate Christ in a way that we identify with people, we, we advocate for them because they cannot advocate for themselves. How about this, the Apostle Paul in Philippians, where he says these, these words, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It's Philippians 3, if you can go, yeah. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine someone saying, I want to be responsible for all of the guilt of the entire human race. I want to experience that in the same way that Christ experienced it. Can you imagine being able to say, I want to experience all the punishment that was afforded to Jesus because of the sins, all responsible for all of that. I want to be like Jesus in such a way that I can, I can experience that myself. Can you imagine? I mean, look, some of us have one thing that we do that's wrong, and we can't live with ourselves. How in the world could you live with the sin of billions of people over the course of history just because that would help you to become more like Christ? I mean, this was a true hero. I mean, this was a guy who wanted to become like Jesus and so much that he wanted to be able to identify with Jesus in every way, including his suffering and his death and the purpose for his suffering and death. Pretty intense. Again, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's not something I could say right now. And probably no one else here could say either. But that doesn't mean that we can't move in that direction to get closer to being able to say that. And if we do, we recalibrate our life. Or how about Romans 9.3, which we just saw a moment ago. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, the Jews, according to the flesh. That Paul felt uh, so empathetic he felt so powerfully for his, his, brother, his brethren, the Jews, and their resistance to Christ, that he was willing to be cut off, just like Moses, in order that they might receive forgiveness. In other words, I would give up my eternal salvation if that meant that my brethren could come to faith in Christ. It's exactly what Jesus did. So these are some of the great heroes that 
we know of in Scripture, and that they had a heart and a mind and an attitude that was truly amazing. And it was because they had that heart and mind that they were able to do all of the other things that they did that made you and I possible today. How about this type of Christ and the Abrahamic covenant between Jacob and Esau? And we read this in Genesis 22, verse 2, 9 through 10, and 15 through 18. This is an amazing story, and it's one of the clearest examples of what we call a type of Christ in the Old Testament. This was a hint of the Christ to come. And it was part of the the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here we have where he begins, where God says to Abraham, he says, Take your son, your only son. Remember Isaac, the son of the promise? Remember that they were both very old before they ever had Isaac? Whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, do you know which mountain that was? There is. It's the mount in Jerusalem. It's the very place where the altar in the first temple was set. Where Isaac was almost sacrificed is almost the exact place where the temple was built and where the altar of God was placed. Hundreds of years later, right? When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took a knife to slaughter his son. Now, a couple of things. One is, it was about four days from the time that God said, I want you to take Isaac, your son, and sacrifice him on the mount. So as you are walking for four days, knowing that you may have to offer up your... What does that do to your mind and heart? How do you resolve that every morning that you wake up? And the closer you get to the place that God wants you to make your son a sacrifice. And yet, towards the end of the story, we hear where Abraham was confident that God would offer, would provide a lamb instead of Isaac for him to be sacrificed. Abraham was confident that was going to happen. Even while Isaac was saying to him, hey, and he was, he was saying, hey, Dad, we're going to go make this sacrifice on the mountain. Where's, where's the lamb? <laughs> he actually said that. Like, where's, where's the lamb? Yeah, he probably had to carry this, the, the wood that he was going to be sacrificed on. So, we go on, it goes on to say, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Does this language sound familiar? Your one and only son? I will, A, surely bless you, and I will surely, B, multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall, C, possess the gate of his enemies, 
and in D, your offspring shall, um, your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because of the example of Abraham, through Abraham's example, through his willingness, for his, because of his heart, the nations have been blessed. And you and I are part of those nations outside of the Jewish nation who have been blessed because of Abraham's example. And that blessing came through Jesus Christ. You and I enjoy eternal life because of Jesus coming through the lineage of Abraham and because of the faith that Abraham exhibited the way that he did. And so we have this example here, one of these very powerful examples. So here's another great hero of the Bible that not only was uh, solid in his faith, but who is an example for us uh, in our faith. So why then the recalibrated life? Well, I think that most Christians today believe that they aren't where they need to be and that many Christians um, live lives that are less than inspired in their faith. And, I, and if you don't believe me, I think the empirical evidence is pretty clear that most believers live a less than inspired existence in their relationship with Christ. We are back on our heels in Western civilization in terms of the impact and the effect that the church has in the world that it lives in. So, number one, the world desperately needs more and better examples of what authentic Christianity really is as individuals and within the institutional church. The world, I'm, and when I say desperate, I'm telling you desperate. I mean desperate. I mean, the world is looking for love in all the wrong places. And God has tapped you and me to be his example, his ambassador to the world in which we live. You might have noticed that there hasn't been a second incarnation of Jesus running around in the world trying to inspire people to come to him. That's because that job belongs to you and me. There's no escaping it. Number two, Christians desperately need more and better practices for living a fulfilled and authentic life in Christ. We live less than inspired lives. Now, look, when we talk about a person's life who's recalibrated in the gospel, there are two ways that we share Christ. One is through what we call the gospel of presence. And that must be established before the gospel or proclamation can be received. No one's really interested in knowing what we have to say until they know that what we say we are is what we really are. For the longest time, I observed when I was younger uh, as, as a youth minister, as a pastor, as a professor, for the longest time, I noticed that, that too much of the time, 
the Christian faith, the sharing of the gospel was reduced to like the sharing of information. We wanted to share information. We didn't want to share Christ. We wanted to share information. I remember, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to share this off the top of my head, so I hope I have all the kind of the details right, but when the first TV broadcast happened, so there was a time when we didn't have TVs, and there was a time when there was a broadcast of that, um, they had a prominent businessman on, the, uh, on there who, who owned a hotel chain. And so when he got on TV, it was being broadcast out to thousands of people. <laughs> One of the first things out of his mouth was this, that when you come to my hotel, I would like really appreciate it if you made sure that while you were taking a shower, you would put the shower curtain inside the tub so that the water does not go out on the floor and flood the room. That's, he had this opportunity to convey a message to thousands and thousands of people, and that's, that was the most important thing he could think of to say. And so pastors have used as like, if we have an opportunity to influence thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and some of us do over the course of our lifetime, what is the most important thing that we could say? Is it how important who the person and work of Jesus Christ is in our life and therefore what we think they, he can be in their life? Or is it something akin to keeping the shower curtain inside the tub? Something pretty mun mundane. So look, I think that when the world encounters us, that gospel of presence has to be pretty potent and powerful. The people should be able to tell what we are first without ever really hearing what we say we are second. And that really was one of the distinctives of the early church. And that was one of the reasons why the early church was so effective in sharing the gospel. Because Christians were just so, they stood out and they were so there was so much of a contrast between them and the world in which they lived. They, they, were, they removed themselves from the world to be distinct from the world so that they could show the uniqueness and the particularity of Jesus Christ. But I think that we probably have too much of the world in us rather than us in the world. So can people tell what we are without us ever saying? So, for example, you don't have to go to a you don't have to be visibly present in an ocean or a lake. How many of you have had this experience? You're driving towards a, lake, a large lake or an ocean, and you can smell the water. It just hits you. You can smell it. And you know, you haven't seen it yet, but you know there's a huge body of water coming up. You know. You can't see it, but you know. When I used to, when I was dating Ruth and I used to go home with her after church, as soon as you opened the door, pot roast. The, the smell, the odor of a pot roast is unmistakable. So you didn't, I didn't have to see what was in the oven to know that we were having a pot roast. Those of you who used to wake up and 
Maybe you had your, your coffee on an automatic timer. It would start to percolate. The smell of that coffee in the morning, you didn't have to see it, but you knew it was coffee. You don't have to see gasoline to know that it's gasoline. And you don't have to know that it's, a, you don't have to see a skunk to know that there's a skunk in the area, right? We used to have, we used to live in a farm out in Lancaster, and in February, about now, skunks would invade our little farmhouse basement, and they would fight each other over some, like, female skunk, and they would spray, and then the furnace would turn on. And it'd pick up that odor and go through all throughout the house, and you'd wake up and your eyes would be big as saucers. And you never said, what is that? You knew what it was. It was a skunk. How is it that these mundane things in life can be so recognizable, but we are not? We should smell like a skunk, if you get my drift, in the world in which we live. As a hunter, I can tell you, that I can know a lot of animals just by how they sound when they walk through the woods. Squirrels. You just hear a you know it's a squirrel. Turkeys. Sounds like someone sweeping the garage. They just get their claws going, and before you know it, there's this huge, great big area where they've scraped the leaves away so they can get to grubs and seasons and things like that. When I was camping on the Appalachian Trail with a friend, a couple of black bears were approaching our tent. They sound different than deer. Deer go ch, 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 ch. That's how they sound. But a bear print in the leaves is ch, 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 ch. You know it's a bear. And then, of course, the clumsy, lead-footed human. You can always know that it's a human versus anything else because they don't know. But you know these things without seeing them. It's clear. You know. Are we clear with our presence? Do people, can they tell that we are different? Sometimes I watch sports, and the way that a professional athlete conducts himself, there's just something different, and I know. Cam Hayward, you just know. The way he conducts himself on TV in an interview, there's something different about how he speaks. Brock Purdy, the San Francisco 49ers, when he was playing and he was talking long before he ever came out or I heard that he was a Christian, I, I could tell there was something different about him. C.J. Stroud from Houston, Christian McCaffrey from San Francisco, and Kirk Cousins from Minnesota. If you hear, just hear them talk. They don't even have to be talking about God. You know there's something different about them. So what does the unbelieving family member, neighbor, co-worker, and stranger experience in us without really knowing us? Do you smell like a Christian? Do you sound like a Christian without ever really having to talk about something that's specifically Christian? Do people just sort of there's something different about that person. And the difference is the essence of Christ in us. Francis of Assisi says, and I've said this many times, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. 
Someone once said, I'd like to hear what you are saying, but your actions speak so loudly, I cannot hear what it is that you are trying to say. We've all known that person who just couldn't connect it, right? Like, they say they're a believer, but their attitude, their heart, the way they speak, the way they treat people, it just drowns out anything they have to say about what it means to be a believer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, your life as a Christian should, not, should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. This is probably one of those slides that if you take pictures, you ought to take a picture of because I think this is so powerful and poignant. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their, question their disbelief in God. Question it. So what are the causes for this recalibration? Why do we need to be recalibrated? Well, I think here are some of them. Actually, I, what I did was I got online and I said, what are all the words that begin with the, that, that have the prefix dis, D-I-S? So there were apparently over a thousand words, right? And so I went through them and I found a, kind of a little treasure and this is what they are. Um, we need to be recalibrated because we live a life of disappointment with God, with others. We need to be recalibrated because we are distracted. There's probably never been a generation more distracted than our generation. We have an unbelievable number of things that can pull us away from what's really important. We are so confused between what is important and what is urgent. We, we conflate those two things. They are not the same. You can always tell a person who lives according to what they believe is important versus what they believe is urgent. You can always see that person very clearly. How about disruptions? Or because we are disengaged? Or because we are dissatisfied with something in life, with work, with our health, with our church? Or we are discouraged? Or the bloom is off the, 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 bloom is off the, the, the plant in terms of being disenchanted? Many people who come to faith and then they're all excited and they stay excited and then, and then they start rubbing elbows with people in real life and they become disenchanted. Or they become disconnected. They move, they change places, and so they become disconnected from a church and have a difficult time getting back. Or because of distortions, what people say about the church, what people say about Christians, they distort certain things or the lack of discipleship. In my life, I have never seen less of a commitment to personal discipleship than what I've seen in recent days. In the average church, for decades, if not for centuries, you had Sunday school, you had Sunday worship, a lot of times you had a Sunday evening program, a lot of times you had a Wednesday evening thing, some people even had small groups, some people met with other people and were discipled personally, you had, um, you had special classes about what it meant to become a member of the church that were pretty intense. The irony, of course, is 
that there has never been more information available about the Christian faith than what there is today. You can stand on the shoulders of giants with just a few keystrokes of your fingers and learn stuff that would cost years and thousands of dollars just a few decades ago. But it remains untapped. We need to be recalibrated because of disobedience. And here are some of the disobedient reasons. We are apathetic. We are complacent. We are willfully ignorant. We do not exert any kind of purposelessness when it comes to our faith. We have uh, priority issues. We live in fear. We live in rebellion. We have become self-righteous. Some of us live in bondage. And some of us experience oppression. So last week, I talked about what it meant, and um, I, I talked about what it meant to um, to build on our faith. And I took us to a passage in First Corinthians. And so, Mike, I'm going to be jumping ahead a little bit here. But I want us to understand that a recalibrated life produces things that are eternal in nature. They will not burn. And I asked you last week as I talked about that first part, if you would consider over the course of this past week, what might be some things that you have tried to build on top of your faith that really what you're trying to build with are materials that, that will not last. The materials are deficient what will we, what will we have built on our faith um, so that it will last or will it burn so we read here where Paul's addressing the leaders and the believers in the church of Corinth and I'll just read through this according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, things that will last, things that are worthy of a building that belongs to God, the church itself, if we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ using these things that will endure, then all is good. But too many of us build on the foundation of, of Christ using wood, hay, and straw. And so in verse 13, he says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This is something that we will all experience. That in that second judgment, when God evaluates how we have lived our life as believers. Some of what we will do or have done will, will endure. Some of it is made up of precious stones, of silver. Some, maybe too much, of what we have built on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ is made up of wood, hay, and straw. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, 
he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I think if I were to ask anybody here, none of us here are interested in just, just barely getting in. How wonderful it would be, like as in the parable of the talents, for example, when the stewards stand before uh, the master and they show what they've done with the talents that he's given to them. And the two of them say, Master, you know, I've been able to double this and I've been able to double that. And they say, see, like they're excited that they've been able to do something that would please the master. Do we know that what we have done with our life and how we've built on that foundation will please the master? Are we confident of that? I mean, that's the thing about Paul is that he's confident. Well, I'll get to that um, in 2 Timothy about how he talks about uh, the end of his life. So the question that I think that we need to answer is, if we recalibrate our life, will that mean then that we will build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with things that will endure, that will not burn? The recalibrated life is the way in which we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Better, more enduring, things that will not burn. So here's the problem with building on a faulty foundation with faulty materials. And I have to use my laptop because my laptop didn't want to talk uh, with the internet here, and so, um, so I couldn't print it off. So anyway, uh, so we have this Sampoon department store in Seoul, in, in Seoul uh, South Carolina. So here's what happened when they built uh, with faulty materials. In June 29, 1995, in a space of 20 seconds, the Sampoon department store in, in Seoul, South Korea, fell to the ground, killing 502 people and injuring 937. Criminal negligence, blatant disregard for ethical engineering practices, and shoddy construction led to the largest peacetime disaster in South Korean history. The problem can be traced almost exclusively to the future chairman of the building, Lee Jun. Under his insistence, the building was changed from being an office building to a department store halfway through its construction. To install the escalators, several key support columns had to be eliminated. When the contractors refused to continue building after the changes, they were fired. Then June hired his own company. Later, June had a fifth floor added to the building. Despite warnings, June once again hired his own company. Not only was the building not meant to support a fifth story, but his extra level was made with a, a, a thick, super, super heavy heated floor. Air conditioning units that were added to the roof quadrupled the load structure that, was de that it was designed to sustain. To make matters worse, the building was constructed with substandard concrete and had only half the 16 steel reinforcing bars it needed. Also, the concrete columns were thinner than necessary and were reduced even more when fire shields were installed around the escalators. In April 1995, extensive cracks were spotted, yet nothing was done. These fractures grew exponentially on the day of the disaster. 
but because the management didn't want to lose any day's revenue, they refused to evacuate the building. Top executives, however, left as a precaution. Seven minutes before the collapse, the building began to pop and crack, and employees sounded the alarm, but it was too late to avert disaster, and 1,500 people were trapped inside. This is what happens when we build wrongly and when we build with deficient materials. When we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, wrongly people suffer. When we try to build the church with deficient materials, people suffer. And we become responsible and no less responsible than that person there. So here, and so here's what it looks like. But here are some examples of buildings that endure when they build with good um, sub. Here are some, here are some buildings that, 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 uh, that endure for hundreds if not thousands of years if they are built properly. The pyramids of Giza, Giza for example. So if you go to that one, these are 4,000 years old. Solid foundation, solid materials. The next building, and you'll recognize this building, this is like the Disneyland castle. Um, this is about 500 years old. Solid foundation, solid materials. No, it's not 500, I'm sorry. It's about um, two, two to 300 years old. So, um, and then finally, uh, we have uh, St. Peter's Basilia. Uh, probably the most prominent and influential church building in the world. Hundreds and hundreds of years old. This one's about 500 years old. It too... Uh, has survived unbelievable things over the, over, over, uh, over the centuries because of how it was built with superior materials. We need to be like that. We need to build on these foundations with superior materials. And so how we do that is by doing what we've been talking about so far. So in, in conclusion, these superior materials for the building of our faith and church are the constancy in our purpose the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the biblical virtues, the body of Christ, the spiritual disciplines. These are the things. If you could find that, uh, Mike, it's towards the end. Um, I, I'd appreciate it. If we don't build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with these things, if we don't recalibrate our life using these things, then too much of what we built with will burn, and people will suffer. And we might not be able to be quite as enthusiastic when we stand before the Lord and say, Lord, you gave me these talents. See, this is what I've been able to do with them. So I'm asking you all, as we, um, I'm asking you all, as we consider this, that you think carefully about what you have built your life upon, what materials you have used on this foundation called Jesus Christ as a part of the church. You know, probably one of the second most famous buildings in the world was the, the Church of Notre Dame. And you know that not too long ago, it burned. This is, these are some before and after pictures. 
And interestingly, the parts that burned were the parts made of wood and other materials. The parts that didn't burn were the parts that would never burn. We want to look like the part that didn't burn, not the part that did. So in conclusion, I want to share with you some of Paul's final words from 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. Where the Apostle Paul is speaking in 2 Timothy, this is the last book he wrote. Soon he would be offered up as a martyr uh, in Rome. And he writes this letter to Timothy, and he says this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. What a wonderful final statement to say that he has lived his life as passionately as he could, and I don't have time to get in it, but if, you were, if you're interested, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about all of the things the Apostle Paul endured as an apostle. And years later, he writes this. I'll read it one more time, and then we'll conclude in prayer. After all that he endured, in every way that he built on the foundation of Jesus Christ with solid materials, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Let's say this together. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I would encourage us all to take that text, to photocopy it, to print it off, to put it somewhere, because let that be your call. Let that be your proclamation as well. With a recalibrated heart that's built solidly upon the foundation of Jesus Christ.